Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Welcome to this week's edition of Speech Pathology Australia's Speak Up podcast. My name is Kim Teresi and I'm the Senior Advisor for Aged Care for Speech Pathology Australia. And I'm really looking forward to today's conversation um, around working with people with progressive neurological disorders. I'd like to welcome our two contributors today to today's program, Dr Anna Farrell and Shana Talbert both of whom are speech pathologists with long-standing clinical and research expertise in this area of practice. Anna is Director of Speech Pathology at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Metro South Health in Brisbane and has broad clinical and research expertise in working in Australia and the United Kingdom. And Anna completed her PhD evaluating the impact of neurosurgical treatments on motor speech function in Parkinson's disease at the University of Queensland. She's worked as the senior speech therapist for several years at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, the University College London NHS Trust, and for nearly a decade as speech pathology neurorehabilitation team leader at Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, Metro North Hospital and Health Service. And Shana Talbert is a speech pathologist at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, where she works in the neurology inpatient and outpatient setting. Shana has worked with the neurology caseload in the UK and in Australia, and has a special interest in progressive neurological disorders. And she is currently enrolled in her PhD at the University of Queensland, investigating video fluoroscopic swallow studies. So welcome, Anna and Shana. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Kim. It's um, a delight to be here today. Absolutely a pleasure. Love talking about this topic. Yeah, it is a really um, topic close to my heart too in an area of practice that I've long practised in as well. We know that speech pathologists play an important role within the diagnostic um, aspects, assessment and management, working with people with progressive neurological disorders. Um, some speech pathologists work within specialist multidisciplinary teams with this population, and for others, they might work with this group of people less frequently. Um, I guess firstly, what I wanted to ask you both to comment on is what might you see as some of the core skills that we have as speech pathologists that might be transferable in working with people with progressive neurological conditions? Um, I can jump in here, Kim. So I think um, just our core diagnostic skills in listening to um, our patients and their families, um, particularly our ability to um, conduct a, a case history and um, find out about the onset of symptoms, core elements of, of swallowing and speech, 
but particularly um, our diagnostic skills in motor speech. So being able to, to listen to someone's speech and um, be able to characterise what some of the key features are, I, I think they're really important skills in, um, in this particular population. So that would be some of my um, things there. <laughs> so I think what I'd add to that um, is speech pathologists are really good problem clinical problem solvers, um, whether that be to develop compensatory strategies or find alternative ways to do things. Um, and some of those other skills of training communication partners um, and uh, providing that education and reassurance to, to the person with the progressive illness or, or, or to their carers um, and just generally supporting, supporting other professionals and the families as well. I think are core skills that we have and that we can easily transfer across to this mm. caseload. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And then I guess there's also um, alongside that is those skills or knowledge and expertise that you develop over time and working with that population. And maybe if you could comment then further about what you see as some of that specialist knowledge or the key parts of that knowledge that um, speech pathologists might be aware of in working with people with progressive neurological conditions. Um, I can comment, Kim, just in terms of um, the ability to know some of the patterns of the diseases. So particularly um, in a condition like motor neurone disease, which is obviously encompasses a whole range of different presentations, being able to um, observe and, and know some of the key um, phenotypes or passions of disease and then be aware of where um, the communication and swallowing issues may, may feature more prominently at particular points and then be able to provide intervention and the appropriate education for, for patients and their families. Because obviously um, this is one of the frustrating things sometimes that everyone is so it's so individual. Mm -hmm. um, but being able to know about some of some of the key passions so you can provide um, appropriate education. Um, for, for patients and provide um, intervention at the right time for, for people. Great, thanks. What would you um, comment on there, Shana, as um, some of the specialist knowledge and skills? Yeah, so I, I totally agree with Anna. And I suppose just to add some of the lesser known um, features of some of these progressive disorders are, for example, cognitive impairment in some but not all um, people with motor neurone disease, um, the, the cognitive and psychiatric impairments in, say, Huntington's and, and Parkinson's disease. And these are, are critical for um, tailoring the assessment and, and the interventions to, to the person in a way that they're going to be able to respond to them um, and, and providing that sort of support as well to the, to the family and, and carers so that we're really able to meet their needs as best we can, but also realistically in the context of those um, cognitive and um, psychiatric impairments. Mm. Terrific. And um, obviously, as things um, change over time in some of those conditions with communication, sometimes we have um, a role in supporting communication as well in, in various ways. What's been your experience in, in working with that area? In terms of communication, quite extensive, so that there's so many elements to it. It's about the communication, obviously, of, of the patient or client, as well as the communication of the communication partners, looking at a 
holistic approach to communication, looking at um, the environment in which people are. Are they in a residential care um, setting or at home? Um, so a lot of training of communication partners, really listening to um, to patients and clients about what their challenges are, where communication is breaking down. And then that, I guess, comprehensive approach to um, alternative forms of communication, whether that's low tech or a pen and paper, or is it more um, at the more advanced high tech end of the spectrum with, um, you know, eye gaze systems or um, yet yeah, something that's um, more, more high tech. So just being um, able to really fit communication strategies that are that are appropriate um, for for the patient and their families and the, the communication environment mm, that's great thanks and I think what I'd add to that is it, it's not an either or high tech or low tech and it can be really <laughs> tempting with all this marvelous technology to jump in at those eye gaze and fantastic apps and tablets and things um, but we also know that realistically we need often some low-tech uh, AAC to go alongside that because as people say you can't take an iPad into the shower or out in the rain um, so just sim very simple but comprehensive low-tech AAC and I think the some of the, the critical things there are about they look deceptively simple but the training for conversation partners and the person with progressive neuro disease to be able to use them uh, and use them well and use them effectively and use them with um, minimum effort. Um, that takes so much more rehearsal and tailoring of the, the aid and, and changing over time to get it right and changing with the progression of the disease. Um, and it's all, I, I find that we can very easily underestimate how much training that takes and people with carers who aren't family um, who turn over frequently, that they need sort of training again and um, I, I really can't emphasize the importance of that enough, I suppose. Um, and it, just that it looks so much more simple than it, than it actually is to, to put in place. Um, and I suppose some of the other uh, perhaps less understood or less known about sides of AAC might be to do with things like message banking. You know, we've all heard about voice banking and um, a lot of the support and voluntary organizations tell um, people about voice banking, um, but do, is there a really good understanding of it that it, it's simply a, a voice output, but, but we really need to understand the technology that goes behind it and the, and the training and the selection of the, the device and then the apps and that eye gaze and, and voice output are part of the system, but not the whole system. So when people are recording their voice up front, are they understanding that this is um, what the system really is? Um, so it's difficult, I find, as a speech pathologist because the technology is changing almost more rapidly than I can keep up with. So um, it's a complex area but a really important area, I think. So, so important. And I think you've covered off those points really well. I really liked your point, though, that you made about when we're thinking about that um, alternative augmentative communication, we have to think broadly across communication environments and communication functions for people. It's not a matter of just necessarily always a one-size-fits-all in terms of this is the device, but frequently people will need different options across, you know, when I just want to um, say quickly at the coffee shop that I want my standard order of 
a latte, um, my community request card might be much quicker and simpler for me to use to pull out than my high-tech device. So, yeah, I really liked the point of reinforcing that we, you know, that's what speech pathologists do, don't we? We look at the communication need and tailor our solutions and our, our strategies to what the actual need is, what the communication partner and the, the importance, as you said, Shana, about that um, training um, aspect of it, the embedding it in people's lives and making sure that everyone around that person understands um, how to how to interact with and, and use use the supports. Yeah. And if I could just come back to something Anna said earlier about the, the different phenotypes, the different patterns of disease. And so, um, for example, in, in motor neurone disease, somebody with a, a more bulbar um, uh, form of the disease will lose their um, speech early on in the disease, but might still have hand function. Um, so at that time might do fairly well with just a simple iPad that they can use with their fingers. They might not need an eye gaze. Somebody who loses um, limb function, but still retains voice. Um, there are so many combinations and it's just being very aware, maybe even contacting the treating neurologist or, or, or the team and really understanding what form of the disease that person has. So you can really anticipate what kind of assistive communication devices they may need and then keep revisiting it to see as, as, the, as the, uh, their function changes, cognitive function, limb function, eye gaze, etc. I, I really think that's um, quite tricky to do again, but important, critical. Mm, absolutely. Okay. So um, I guess I was also reflecting on some of the things you were then talking about, Shana, about how people's uh, condition may change over time and, and particularly working with people with these progressive neurological conditions. And I guess for the speech pathologist, it brings to us exposure to circumstances where our clients are potentially losing skills and um, you know, functions that they may have previously been having. Um, for some of the people that we work with, they may be approaching end-of-life care or palliative care considerations. And I wondered if you might be able to comment on your reflections on this and whether you found any specific strategies or supports that you found helpful for yourself and your own self-care in, in working in this area? So I think that's a, such an important question. And I think as healthcare professionals and having worked in the area for a long time, it's so important to put in um, sort of self-care strategies because it is a really um, challenging area to work in and um, particularly doing sort of long clinics um, where you're seeing a number of um, patients presenting and with their families, it, it, it can be, it can be a, hard, a hard day. Um, so I do think self-care strategies, I think having a team approach and sharing um, sharing um, knowledge and um, how you're feeling about managing particular patients is really important. I've learned so much from our um, nursing and neurology colleagues and palliative care um, physicians who are who have been involved um, in in clinics um, who are involved from almost the beginning of the journey in terms of diagnosis. I think we can learn so much um, from our colleagues in in palliative care actually in terms of supportive care, not just seeing it as a sort of an end of life terminal phase, but how do we support people in the grief and loss journey? Um, I think it's really important. So I think having the right people in place. Um, and being honest about it, being a difficult, it is a difficult area. 
um, and having that peer supervision and professional support with with your colleagues. And I know um, Shara and I have worked have worked together for a long time, just being able to to speak about um, particular cases that we were managing and ask for um, suggestions or um, workshop ideas. I think is is really important. This is where. We, we really do need that professional support in place. So I'd encourage anyone working in this area to um, have some peer support or um, speak to speak to the teams that, that you're working with. Um, absolutely, 100% agree. Um, and some things to add, I suppose, are or that I've personally found helpful is um, I'm in a very fortunate position that I can often do a joint session with a colleague. So if we're going to speak to somebody about... Um, to inform them about options for um, alternative feeding um, and it's going to be a difficult session doing that session jointly with a dietitian or where the palliative care um, doctor or the the specialist nurse um, for the clinic um, just so that you can two heads are better than one sometimes in this situation just bouncing ideas or if an approach isn't working um, the way I've delivered it the, the, the nurse can step in and maybe phrase it a different way so you feel supported uh, don't feel alone in this difficult task, but also sometimes a different approach is, uh, works better than, than another. So that joint session I found enormously useful. And as Anna said, learn something every single time from power care doctor or the way the dietitians phrase something. Um, uh, so, so that's enormously helpful. And also sometimes when we've had a, um, needed a family meeting to, to come to a difficult decision, having the palliative care consultant to chair that meeting um, just to take the lead, um, it's because not all on, on speech pathology, um, it's very, very much a multidisciplinary thing, but having, yes, that feels very supportive, having somebody else chair the meeting um, and you can um, contribute but, but not um, shoulder that task alone, I think is really enormously helpful. And then just as Anna alluded to, that debrief, sometimes the family leave the room and the team just sort of sit there in silence and just breathe and then just have a little debrief to um, see what we've learned and see if everybody's okay. And that's mm -hmm. uh, really, really helpful. Yeah, no, thank you for those comments. I think that's a really important reflection. And, and I think um, across the board, because I know that often um, we have chats with members calling in to um, Speech Pathology Australia who are um, following up on specific issues or um, looking for support in certain areas. But, um, you know, there might be times when people might be working in existing teams, I guess, and in those times when speech pathologists may be working in a more of a kind of solo environment if they might happen to see somebody in the community with a progressive neurological condition and seeing them as their private practitioner. But I guess your point about the value of that um, team-based approach for yourself as much as the, the um, person involved is, is really valuable for everyone to reflect on and how do, how do we build our own teams around us as much as possible? How do we make those connections and, and do that next step to reach out to build that team connection if, even if we're not in that ready-made physically sighted together team sort of thing? Yeah, so I think that's a really good really important point you made I think it's something that you know that um no doubt people you know people often um take a little moment to go through I I still remember my transition as a clinician and that was a long long time ago 
probably at least a couple of decades ago, moving a transition from being in a kind of acute, subacute kind of sector in a rehab team to going into a community progressive neurological um, disorder team and suddenly going from getting my own head around as a clinician from going from a rehab goal-oriented approach to, hmm, okay, I've really got to evaluate for my own self here. What's my value proposition as a speech pathologist here and, and get that sorted? And, and I, you know, once you've sort of got that sorted for yourself, that this is my value proposition, this is what I add, this is what I'm here to do, it's such an incredibly rewarding area to work with as well. Thank you for all those um, thoughts in that area. I, I probably will just also do a bit of a quick plug for, um, Shani, you mentioned about the discussions around um, alternative feeding um, decisions and things like that. And, and it also might be interesting here just to, to make note of our on um, supporting informed choice around um, people who choose to eat and drink with acknowledged risk. And Speech Pathology Australia also has a position statement available on the website for talking about the role of the speech pathologist in supporting informed choice and shared decision-making in that area of risk feeding. So that might be something that people also would like to have a look at in this area. I think the um, thing I'd like to just um, also touch on is to see whether or not with you know all of your experience and expertise, you've got any recommendations for any specific resources or um, ideas about where you think speech pathologists might look for help and support in this area? I certainly know that in the last um, few years now, my caseload is nearly entirely um, progressive neuro. I've spent more time looking at um, some of the websites from the um, specific disease specific support associations um, there might be support groups or they might be research labs um, there is a wealth of um, information in the form of fact sheets sometimes fact sheets directed towards the people and their carers and or the professional sometimes it's good to to read um, both both of those um, there are decision making tools um, for example, um, Motor Neuron Disease Association of Australia has a decision-making tool um, to help guide um, people with the diseases through um, decision-making about a peg or not. Um, so they're constantly updating their materials. Um, and so these associations from Australia, but also UK and US have a wealth of information there for you if you're encountering this um, disease for the first time or, um, and just, or just want some more information about it to learn for yourself or materials to provide for um, people with progressive neurological diseases and their families. So I've um, spent a lot of time looking at those and found them enormously beneficial. Um, and then, as you said, you alluded to earlier, the Speech Pathology Australia materials as well, of course. Yeah, I would, I would agree um, with Shana in terms of the Speech Pathology Australia materials are very helpful. Um, and also other sites that I find, have found really helpful um, so the National Institute of Clinical Excellence in the UK, which pulls together all the evidence for particular neurological, um, progressive neurological diseases, and then what the what the evidence is around particular treatments. And um, obviously, it is a different health health system, um, but I think there's some really great um, sort of 
bringing together that knowledge translation, all of the evidence together in, in the one place and, and what the different ratings are. Also, so I, I have found that really helpful and I just frequently, you know, review it to see if there's anything new. And there's also some really lovely resources that are co-designed, um, sort of consumers co-designing um, education in the area of motor neuron disease at, at the University of Sheffield. And that's sort of YouTube um, resources, um, which are really in terms of patients talking about their experience of, of living with motor neuron disease, which I, I think um, there are some really lovely um, resources there and also um, the work of Dr Emily Plowman from um, the United States who has a, a swallowing lab around um, motor neuron disease as well some really great resources around communication and, and swallowing um, in motor neuron disease so just some some key things that I found helpful and um, there's also some really excellent um, sort of how do you how do you break bad news and supportive care type resources from Mount Sinai um, Medical School in um, New York with some lovely sort of YouTube clips on how to have difficult conversations with some very expert um, palliative care physicians. So just accessing sort of a range of of resources, I find is quite helpful. Um, That's yeah. a fabulous list, you guys. That thank you. <laughs> I've got a tiny little bit to yeah. add to that, actually. Anna's just prompted me from what you were saying. Um, I think circling back to communication um, and evidence, uh, the evidence is evolving fairly quickly about um, what's effective in terms of treatment for some of the dysarthrias in the different mm -hmm. progressive neurological diseases. Um, and the evidence is evolving. So to keep on top of it, we all have Google Scholar mm. and um increasingly it's easy to access full journal articles and so um, that's a, a quick and effective way of keeping up with um, the evidence you can use the nice guidelines as Anna said but looking up things about expiratory muscle strength training the Dr Emily Plowman's group have done a lot of um, in, in multiple different disease groups um, obviously Leo, Lee Silverman but also the biscuit the biofeedback and strength and skill training for swallowing um, there's now evidence in, in Parkinson's disease. And so um, checking through Google Scholar quickly just to see really what is the evidence currently on um, doing those treatments or not doing them for different specific diseases and different stages in the disease um, is fairly critical because we're all working in a really resource-constrained environment. The people with progressive neurological conditions are very often prone to fatigue and they've got limited energy. So we really want to make sure our um, input and interventions are uh, evidence-based so that we're using their energy in a way that's going to bring them some, some results. So um, Google Scholar is a really helpful way to find out what is evidence-based. Thank you. They were, they were a fantastic list of resources. I think um, everyone will be really excited to follow a lot of those leads up. I guess that takes us to um, towards the end of our podcast today. And I um, guess I'd like to just end by asking you to um, tell us about what you'd um, like to say would be your key take-home messages for people um, working with this clinical population. Um, I would say that as speech pathologists, we are incredibly privileged to work with this group of people and I think we learn something from every person we work with, um, but to listen to what our patients, clients are telling us, listening to, that, to, our, to their families and um, taking time 
um, and considering the the whole you know the holistic picture, I think is really important um, in this condition. I think taking a growth mindset and that we are learning all the time about these conditions as the sort of scientific discoveries are showing more and more about the genetics of these conditions. And so I think it's a really exciting time to be a speech pathologist in this area as um, also with, you know, data sources and um, being able to pull together data from across the globe, really, in a digital age. I think this is a really exciting time to, to learn more about the communication and um, swallowing in, in these conditions, but also how we can um, really make a difference to the quality of life of, of, of our patients and their families, then we can make that difference. So it's very satisfying. Um, it's challenging, but I, I would say it's, I would encourage people to um, explore this as an area of, of practice. Um, so you can make a difference with one person, um, but take a growth mindset and, and enjoy the learning. That would be my take-home messages. <laughs> Terrific. Anything mm. to add on that, Shana? Um, I concur, Anna. Um, mm -hmm. And I suppose what I'd add is um, really it's, a, it's not just about speech pathologists. It's really a, a team-based approach to problem solving um, and supporting a person with one of these progressive neurological diseases, supporting them in their choices and their wishes through that creative problem solving, mixed, mixed with evidence-based, but really meeting the patient where they're at um, and helping support them in, in their choices and their decisions. Um, you know, when they're losing function, find activities that still bring them, bring them joy. Um, I love the story about a gentleman I saw last week who is, has no longer any speech, but he's got a fabulous motorized wheelchair and what brings him joy is driving into the paddock, um, sitting with his dog and he can no longer call for him, but he's had a horn installed on his motorized wheelchair that the dog takes as his call and he just loves that's his communication mm. he communicates with his dog so finding uh some strengths that the person still has things that can bring them joy um, and working together as a team to to really support the person and their family mm. my take-homes what and planning ahead planning ahead so trying to sort anticipate what's coming next um when doing all of that problem solving and what fantastic messages um and i thank you both for all of your um wealth of knowledge and and wisdom that you've shared with us today it's been a fabulous discussion thanks very much to anna farrell and shana talbot for joining us today on uh, this speak up podcast and thank you everyone we hope you enjoyed this week's conversation be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.